At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 453rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is merging multiple garden systems into one. We're talking with Ed Williams about aquaponics with soil. Ed is a civil engineer by profession. In his spare time, he uses engineering principles to design functional ecosystems, which he applies to gardening. This practice led him to develop a new method of gardening that he calls the Lear Garden. He is currently building his second-generation prototype of the Lear Garden and using it as a centerpiece for his homestead and demonstration garden in Tempe, which he calls the Lear Urban Homestead. Welcome to the show today, Ed. Are you ready to rock? Yes. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I would say it started when I was a little kid. I, I loved having pets. I loved having lizards and turtles and, and everything like that. But I hated cleaning up the... Uh, Leftovers. Yeah. And so I realized that in nature, nobody's out there cleaning up after all the animals. It just naturally takes care of itself. So I started asking the question, who can do this that isn't me? And I started incorporating plants into my design. When I got to my late 20s, I started gardening and took that same attitude. Who can do this that isn't me? And I started well, working into composting. And in my early 30s, I got into growing mushrooms. And it became more about creating a complete functional ecosystem. Always, always, always answering the question, who can do this that isn't me? So I, I think that's pretty much where I got to where I am now because uh, the, the garden that I've got is uh, it's a combination of mechanical and biological systems uh, that really thoroughly answers the question of who can do this that isn't me. Wow. I t- you know what? My listeners always are clued in that I always like to call out epic. I love that. I got chills when you said that. Who can do this that isn't me? Basically, you're looking for workers in your yard, right? Absolutely, yes. Tell me more about that. So the uh, Lear, uh, the name itself, actually, it means two things. So the, the acronym is Linking Ecosystem and Hardware for Regeneration. It's also a, a German root word that means to learn or to teach, which is really a core value. But it, back to the, the ecosystem and hardware. So what I've done is, is gone through and identified just about everything that needs to be done. So I need to water my garden. I've got a pump on a timer that waters a garden, water 
pumps up to the into the garden, flows through the soil, uh, drains back down, captures anything that, that isn't absorbed uh, so that we don't waste it. As the plants use the water, the, the tank needs to be refilled. I've got a float valve that does that. I've got all of the plumbing. I've got all of the, the hardware that's there to keep it moving. I've got an automatic fish feeder so that I don't have to go out every morning and feed the fish. I've even actually got chickens integrated into mine, and as the water flows through the system, it flushes the chicken water so that I don't even have to go water the chickens. They, they just automatically get watered. Into the biological systems, the soil biology is is something that I think a lot of people discount. Yeah, big time. Biological soil does a lot of a lot of really important things. It manages the, the soil chemistry, it manages the nutrient load. And what I found in, in playing with this was that the biological systems in the soil actually can do some really amazing stuff that is kind of missing in aquaponics. So for example in aquaponics, when you have a fish that dies in your tank, you get a nitrogen spike as that fish starts to decompose. Right. And the the system isn't really prepared to handle that. So you need to test the water regularly. And when you sense that nitrogen spike, you got to get that fish cleaned out because if you get too much going on, then it, you can you can cause a fish die off. Mine doesn't suffer that problem. It, it actually is, if there's an increase in, in nutrients that the plants can't handle, the soil biology uptakes those nutrients and stores them. Uh, likewise, if I if I have a fish die off, I've had a couple of uh, equipment malfunctions over the years that I've I've tried to find better ways to manage. But if if you get a fish die off um, because an aerator broke it, it when it's 110 outside, for example, uh-huh. then all of a sudden that you pull those fish out, that fish waste isn't there. The plants don't even notice the lack of fish because the soil biology has stored nutrients. It's breaking down the organic matter that I gave it, and the plants just keep growing as if, as if nothing happened. Another one is, the, is the, the pH. We have really high pH water here in the Phoenix area, mm-hmm. and the soil biology is really there to create the right functions for plant growth. So it actually manages my soil pH, my water pH. I don't really have to do anything. I only test it every couple of months, and it's always within a certain acceptable range, usually around 7.6. Wow, cool. So how did you get here? So you went from imagining this as a, as a kid, and obviously you've planted seeds along the way in your thought process to figure it out. How did you get to the Lear Garden? It was just experiment, something that I wanted to try it out when I was probably in my in my late 30s. I learned about aquaponics, and I said, hey, this is really cool. I, I loved the little ecosystem that aquaponics creates, except that I'm, I'm a soils guy. I've been a soils guy for a long time. Uh, you know, really, ecosystems are creating and, and maintaining ecosystems is my passion, and so having a system that pretends that soil is, is has no use wasn't it didn't it didn't speak to me. So I wanted to see if if I could create something that did created the, the, the same sort of recirculating system that aquaponics creates, but with with the soil. Cool. So tell me what this garden looks like and how it works. 
right now my, my, my garden is built out of wood. That's actually something that can be built out of any number of materials. I'm actually in a rental property. So mine's actually designed modular so that when I move out, I can just pick it up and, and go and go with it. But what it is, is I've got a sump tank that's buried in the ground. It's just a little 110-gallon stock tank that I got from the farm store. Yep. Then the water from there, I've got, I've got a pump down in the sump tank that's connected to a timer. Uh, that pump w- runs through a PVC pipe into an IBC, one of those big tanks with a kind of a metal cage around it. The totes. And then from there, the water fills up, and then it runs into a pipe down into the wooden garden bed. I've got basically just built it out of wood, and then it's got a pond liner in it, so the water is captured. The bed itself has a slope on it, so I do it a little bit differently than aquaponics. When you're dealing with soil, you have to deal with the small particulate matter of the soil, uh, which aquaponics doesn't deal with, really. So the the soil, actually, let me back up a little bit. When the water dumps into the garden bed, the first thing it dumps into is the first foot of the bed is actually a little compost bin. Um, And I go ahead. I generally don't use put a lot of kitchen waste into it, Uh um, although I'm realizing that now that I've got a bigger system, that kitchen, it'll actually handle the kitchen waste. But uh, it's for trimmings and the solid waste from the fish gets captured there. And it becomes something that is really, really, it's fun watching it because it's, it's one of the most active compost bins I've ever seen in my life. It breaks down organic matter, plant matter in a matter of days. I've got a uh, artichoke plant in the yard that I'm cutting leaves off every couple of days and dropping them in there. And they're, the only thing you can see is the center rib and within just a matter of about four days. So it's, it's really cool to watch. Anyway, so that from there, the water flows down through the, through the soil. It just, it just percolates through the soil. The bed itself has a slope on it so that uh, it drains properly. The water being soil, I'll actually wick up into the root zone of the plants. Right. Soil is, I've got one bed that's a foot. I've got another one that's a foot and a half deep. So I'm kind of playing with soil depths a little bit. And then it drains down to the other end where it drops down into a pipe and then flows back into the sump tank. So that's the basic operation of the Lear Garden. And where do the fish show up at? The fish live in the upper tank, in the, the I, oh, IBC. IBC tote, yeah. right. Wow. Cool. Yeah. And what are the benefits of the Lear Garden? The big one that I discovered is that it's, it's really, really low maintenance. Um, I first discovered this back in 2014. I, had, I got sent for a two-week off-site out of Indiana, actually, uh, training session by my boss. And... I didn't really have anybody in my network who could, who was a gardener who was willing to come out and take a look at it. So I got a friend to just come out about every two or three days and just look at the garden and say, you know, is it, are the plants wilting? Is the tank running dry? Is something overflowing and flooding? That's it. That was, that was all. And she just kind of stuck her head out the door, looked around, said, now it looks good. And that was it. So for two weeks in June, in the south side of my house in wow. full sun in Mesa, Arizona, you know, the temperatures were 110, 115 degrees. My garden got zero attention from a human being. And I got home and I lost, I lost about two clover plants because it was just too hot for them. Otherwise, it did fine. It rained itself. The fish were fed. The, the, the water kept topping itself off. And that was when I really realized that, that I was on to, to something pretty cool. Is, mm-hmm. is it just brings the maintenance level that you need to run a garden way down. I, I don't weed it. I don't 
water it. I don't, you know, all of those usual tasks, you know, I go out and admire it and I watch plants grow, but that, that isn't something I have to do. Yeah. I get to do that. Well, and this really plugs into your acronym and the acronym is LEAR, L-E-H-R. And I want to talk about the R for a little while. How did you discover the R? What is it? And how have you integrated it into this whole process? Well, let me go go back to my my other profession for just a second here. I'm I'm a civil engineer, and I got involved um, with the local uh, American Public Works Association. Was creating a sustainability committee a number of years ago, and I got involved with that. And after a couple of years, I ended up being the chairman of that committee uh, for a couple of years. And you know, one of the big questions that that we ask is what is what is sustainability? And as you might imagine, I'm not I'm not really a good enough is good enough kind of guy. It was sort of a <laughs> right? oh, you know we're we're yeah. So, but let's figure out what what really is sustainable. How do we get to a sustainable culture? And and one of the things that I realized in my uh, research and thinking it through was that sustainable isn't good enough. You know, we've gotten yes. to a point of degradation right now that. We don't want to sustain what we have. We need to fix it. We need to regenerate the environment. I'm cheering over here. I've said for years that sustainability simply sustains the mess we've created. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. good for you, man. So where did you take it from there? So from there, yeah, it's what is regenerative agriculture? And I, there's a lot of people that are kind of working on that definition right now. But really, the two things that are absolutely critical to regenerative agriculture, and, and really agriculture is center to a lot of a lot of what we do as a society and a lot of the harm that we create as a society. So, to central to regenerative agriculture is creating soil and creating habitat for wildlife. And my system does both of those things. Um, actually, one of the things that's interesting is even though I'm I'm in a container. It actually creates its own soil in place. When I first build a garden, what I put in there is not something that most people would consider soil. It's a lot of it's a lot of branches. It's a lot of wood chips. It's a lot of raw material that the soil biology will turn into soil. I put, do put some compost into it, but mostly that's there so that the right organisms are in place to to really start that soil creation process. And I've actually found that after after about two or three years, the soil gets to this really rich black humus that's just fantastic soil. But for some reason, my production slows down a little bit. So what I do is I it seems to work best if you're actually creating the soil in place. So what I do is I pull some of that soil out and I'll put it in a container garden or I'll top dress around my perennials that I've got in my yard. And so I use that rich black organic soil elsewhere, I just work in more, you know, the contents of my compost bin, tree trimmings from around the yard, I'll, I'll work those back in, and then it just starts right back up again. It, it really likes creating its own soil. I have to tell you that when I met you, we, we met recently at one of our events here in Phoenix, and when you shared with me what you were putting in your garden beds to start them, I, I had to pause. It was like, that's curious. When you start a garden bed, share with us what you put in your garden. So I'm still kind of working out the exact ratios, but but the bulk of what I put in there is woody material. I have a pile of tree trimmings in my backyard that I'm I don't I don't own a chipper. I chop them up roughly. The twigs I try and break down as much as I can because they they create a bridge and you know it, it keeps the 
it doesn't let the water flow through correctly. It, so it, it's you got to try and you know get them them broken up a little bit. But so I put in maybe twenty percent compost, like finished compost. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not completely finished, that's okay. I put in some nutrients, uh, a little bit of uh, rock powders, a little bit of biochar. The biochar sort of helps with that buffering effect, and that's mostly it. You know, right now I'm in the city of Tempe, and uh, they've got some wonderful compost yards, and that's really been helping me bulk out the organic content of of my soil and give something beneficial for the plants to grow. And I like to put something kind of small particulate on the soil on the on the very surface so that the plants actually have something to a little bit more beneficial than just wood chips to grow into. Right. And and do you plant it pretty immediately? Yeah, I've played a little bit with starting off, you know, a new bed. Actually, the only thing I don't put in immediately is the earthworms. Oh, and I I forgot an ingredient, mushroom spawn. Oh, nice. I put I put mushroom spawn in and I'm I'm playing a little bit with the different varieties of uh this this I'm building the third bed right now, and so I'm going to probably be going with more hot weather varieties like pink oyster or milky mushrooms. But that's that was one of my first really cool aha moments is when I first built my, my very first garden. Hugel culture is something that I've been practicing for years, but what I, I don't really just put a, a fresh raw log into the garden. Um, I'll grow mushrooms on it first and let it kind of get a really good head start in that breaking down process. And yep. when I first built my my garden, I had a, a number of spent mushroom logs that I was done with, and I was looking for bulk. And so I just threw them in there thinking, okay, well, here it is, you know, June in Mesa. They're just going to, I know that uh, a lot of mushrooms reach thermal death at about 105. So I had no illusions that they were going to live through the summer, but they would give me some raw materials for soil creation. And much to my surprise, October came, temperatures started dropping, and mushrooms started popping up in my garden. (laughs) Of Um, course. It was awesome. I was just absolutely ecstatic because, you know, that's something I think most people would say uh, isn't possible. Can you grow mushrooms through the summer outside in Phoenix, Arizona? And apparently the answer is yes. That was pretty fun. So the, the, the mushrooms get in and they start breaking down that woody material. And that's really that first place when the, when the biological kingdoms are all warring for dominance and trying to find a way to hit equilibrium. That's when, when things get a little bit tricky. I'm, I'm still kind of finding ways to, to get that worked out because the, you know, even, even putting things that are chunky, you still get some biological nutrients that get taken up into the into the water, and those can be a little bit tricky for the fish, more in terms of oxygen demand than anything else. So you got to have a really good aerator. You've got to get good filtration. Uh, but the mushrooms get in there and they lock up that that woody material, and they start decomposing it pretty rapidly. Yes. And then after about a month or two, then you put the worms in. The worms will get in and they'll just whatever the mushrooms have abandoned. The worms will take take that and start turning it into soil. And for the first couple of months, the plants, the plants do okay, um, but it isn't really amazing until the earthworms have really started to, to make it to where it looks like soil. And then you get the, the, the nutrients from the fish and then the plants just absolutely take off. Wow. How cool is that? You've uh, put a lot of thought into this. So what are you hoping to accomplish with your Lear Urban Homestead? 
It's uh, back to the second meaning of the word. It's it's education. It's something that that uh, I think that as a society we can do a whole lot better. And what I want to do is is help people achieve a measure of food security on their own without having to sacrifice the modern lifestyle. You want to go out to that concert. You want to go on a vacation for head out to Disney World for a week. Gardens make those things hard. There's also the issue of, you know, we can't, you know, we've got to spend two hours a day in the garden because there's just, that's what you got to do. And and these are, I think, a lot of the barriers that a lot of people yes. find to, to gardening is, is just the level of effort. And also, I think when you get the mechanistic side involved, there's also the aesthetic side. And so that's something that I've worked really hard to simplify the design to bring more opportunities for aesthetic design, something that you can walk out in your backyard and say, hey, this looks great. I yeah. love this. So really, I'm, I'm trying to democratize food production. That's, that's really my ultimate goal here. Decentralize it is another word we could exactly. use, right? Yeah. Exactly. You know, bring it into all of our neighborhoods. Well, you know, I'm a big proponent of a garden in every yard. When I, I've been to Europe twice in the past 20 years, and one of the things that I noticed is that everybody has a garden. Yeah. And we're not doing that here. No, we're really not. Yeah. So good for you, man. This is, uh, you're doing really important work. Did there Was there an aha moment along the way? Oh, lots of them. The uh, mushrooms popping up in my garden in, in October, that was a big aha moment. Uh, the the When I found that I could walk away from it for two weeks in oh, the yeah. harshest part, part of the year, that was a big aha moment. Other ones were just finding out one of the one of the other things that I noticed was that I'm I'm a bit of a chaotic gardener. I don't plant rows. I like diversity. I like companion planting. Um, I like creating habitat. So I just I just throw in a riot of plants, and I'm not very good about thinning them. I probably should be better about thinning them, but I just throw everything in. And and what I found was that once that soil really gets going, the only thing that the plants are competing for is sunlight. They've got all the nutrients they could ever possibly want between the soil that's that's made of breaking down organic matter and the the nutrients that the fish load into the water as it flows through. So what I'll do is is I stack plants on top of each other. So for example, I'll put in a single square foot, I'll put an okra plant, which is a nice tall plant that doesn't throw a ton of shade. And then maybe four Swiss chard at the base of that mm-hmm. with a cucumber cucumber planted in there too that just trails over the side of the raised bed you know and then and then a couple of herbs thrown in that can poke up between the swiss chart so it's it's something i get i fit a lot of plants into a fairly small space and and it was really cool as an aha moment to watch not only all of those plants growing but all of them thriving and being very productive nice you're really putting nature to work at that point absolutely yeah I'm going for a meadow, more a meadow than, than a garden. Perfect. So what kind of experiences have you had when others have visited your homestead? Mostly it's been it's been very positive. You know, I've got a couple of friends who come by semi-regularly just to see how things are going because it's really cool to watch, watch it grow. Yeah. Um, some of the plants grow really fast. It, it is just very gratifying to watch people because, again, like I said, I've I'm, I'm halfway decent at car. I'm not a carpenter, but I'm halfway decent at carpentry. And so I, I designed the garden bed to look nice. And so when people walk in, they go, oh, wow, this is really cool. 
And it makes food. It, and it makes food, and the plants are big, and they're growing. And one of the things that's always amusing, they say, okay, so tell me what these plants are. And I start listing off what's growing there, and, and they almost never let me get all the way through the list because I have just so many different varieties of yeah. plants. And they just sort of, they just sort of, you know, blue screen. Their 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 brain, I just can't handle that that many plants. <laughs> no kidding. And it's not like I'm going tomato, 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 tomato. You know, it's there's the Swiss chard, and there's the cilantro, and there's the chamomile, and there's the garlic, and there's the onions. You know, and 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 this is all within. I haven't actually counted it up. I think I've got something like, I probably got about 30 different kinds of plants in just my first bed, which is only 24 feet long and three feet wide. Wow. You know, I've got about 15 okra plants and about, I think it's about 20, 19, I think, uh, squash, summer squash plants. Oh my gosh. And that just takes a section in the middle. That doesn't even take up the whole bed. So you're building a business around this. What, what are you looking for for that? What I'm eventually moving towards is is uh, actually working with people to build these gardens. One of the things that uh, that I would like to work on as well is is because the maintenance is so low, we can actually as a business maintain the garden without having to be there every day. You know, with most gardens, you've got to be out there a couple hours a day, mm-hmm. and that becomes prohibitive to cost prohibitive to hire somebody to do that. But if you can create a garden that essentially runs itself, you just got to come out and take a look at it every week, maybe every two weeks. That becomes something where you can actually get a service to maintain that garden. And then all you've got to do is get get home from work and say, well, let's go outside and see what's for dinner. Somebody else takes care of it. And, you know, working on creating hardware so that we can even sense when something goes wrong. If you've got a, a, a pump that's failed or a fish that's died or, or whatever. So that's that's a little bit farther down the road. But uh, yeah, this is definitely something that I'm, I'm uh, moving forward with. Nice. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. I would say that the the first time that I tried, I, I say I've been working on this about six years. It's probably more like seven, because when I first moved down to Phoenix, I had a little studio loft apartment with no outside space whatsoever. I can't really not garden. So I decided to go ahead and start playing with my ideas for aquaponics with soil in my big bay window that I had in my living room. And what I found was that when you have a lot of particulate matter, getting a, an appropriate filter to keep that, the, the filter needs to not plug. Uh, and so what I found was I had too small of a filter, and I ended up with a lot of muddy water all over my floor. Oops. So, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a mess. It didn't really work very well. It taught me about how to get the filtration right. Uh, so that the the system can function the way that it needs to function, and it taught me to maybe maybe leave my experiments outside. Yeah, there you go, for sure. <laughs> so, what do you consider your biggest success? The biggest success, I would say, is is really the whole system as as it's as it's come together into something that is very low maintenance, very productive, very low water use. You know, it's it's something I've I've got a I've got a, a water meter on it right now. It's using about ten gallons a day. It's kind of the the whole system. It's just wow. I'm, I'm tickled tickled pink by you know just how much I've I've been able to fit in such a small space. It'll be interesting ten years from now to look back to see where you're at now and where you've traveled. It to. will. Yeah. It will. So we're four years into this podcast. Make sure that we uh, catch up with you in a couple of years so that we can. Uh, 
do a re-up so that we know how far you've traveled. Because from what I know about nature and systems like this, I've been playing with them for decades now. You're onto something here, man. I hope so. I really do. Yeah. So what drives you? Trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, as I said, I dug into sustainability and realized that so many of the problems that we face, um, especially here in Phoenix, you know, with the urban heat island effect and flooding and drought and air quality and, and all of these problems tie back to a broken ecosystem. And so really what I want to do is I want to create a new urban ecosystem. Let's, let's, you know, we're, we, we've, they've officially announced that we're in the Anthropocene. Let's own that. Let's create a new human-centered ecosystem in the places that we live. Let's bring nature back into our lives. Let's, let's start fixing some of those broken cycles. That's what I want. That's what drives me. Wow. That's my passion. Cool. Thank you for that. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? You know, I'm going to go maybe a little bit of a different direction than you probably hear on an urban farm com podcast. Um, there's a book called Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets. Um, and it's, uh, yes. it's, have you heard of this one? I have. Yes. It's a good book. Uh, it is a fantastic book. He talks about really some of, a lot of the things that you can do with mushrooms in terms of ecosystem repair and microfiltration and, um, a lot of the, those things, a lot of the, the functionality that I've gotten out of my garden comes from some of the information from that and some of his other books. But that really, of, of, the, of, of his books, that one's really my favorite because it's, it's just, it just ranges all over the place. It's an amazing book. Yeah, Mycelium Running by Paul Stamets. Correct. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? You know, I'm actually going to go with the opposite of the advice that I always get. People always tell me, stop overthinking it. Um, and I'm going to say, don't. Don't stop overthinking it. Everything that I've ever accomplished is because I consider overthinking a good start. You know, the trick is to, to control what you think about. Don't dwell on the bad. But once you've got an idea, move to the next logical step, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, and keep thinking it through. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ed. Thanks for having me. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? So my email address, again, is edwilliamspe at gmail.com. That's P as in professional, E as in engineer. You can also find me um, at Lear Urban Homestead. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. Um, we've got a fairly new YouTube channel. The Lear Urban Homestead stuff is more of the kind of the homesteading type things of like food production and whatnot. Um, if you really want to dig into the, the science of it, I have a, a blog called Mad Bioneer. I also have a Facebook page on that one. I'm a little behind on catching that up, but I, I will be dropping a lot of the, the technical knowledge of how that works on the Mad Bioneer page. The, the, the blog is at madbioneer.blogspot.com. Wow, nice. And uh, again, Lear is spelled how? L-E-H-R. And tell us once again what that stands for. That's an acronym. Yeah, that's an acronym. It's uh, Linking Ecosystem and Hardware for Regeneration. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lear. That's L-E-H-R. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.